Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The United States Attorney General is one of the most powerful roles in American government. Yet right now, that role is filled in a temporary capacity by Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. President Trump's nominee, William Barr, awaits confirmation to officially fill the spot. And this week, the vote to confirm Barr was delayed over some political tensions after his confirmation hearings. Democrats raised concerns today that Barr might not make public the special counsel's report on the Russia investigation when it's finished. This attorney general vacancy at this moment in time, it matters a lot. Much of the country is awaiting the conclusion of special prosecutor Robert Mueller's investigation. But right now, you know, the investigation is, uh, I think, uh, close to being completed. And I hope that we can get the report from Director Mueller as soon as we as possible. And whenever Mueller's report is released, the attorney general is set to see it first before it's delivered to Congress. So what exactly happens when the attorney general reviews a special prosecutor report? Can he redact material before it gets to Congress? Can he choose which parts of the report even get sent over? How does Congress decide what's made public? And, of course, does the president get a say? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. It turns out this isn't America's first rodeo with special investigations. Most of us can recall a particularly notable report released in early September of 1998 that had the country waiting on the edge of their seats, anticipating its release. Well, the mood of the country is, you know, incredible anticipation. I mean, this is an investigation that's been going on, and, you know, all through 1998, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing had taken over the conversation in Washington. Yes, that's right. The Starr Report, the major independent counsel investigation led by Kenneth Starr into President Bill Clinton. For The Post's chief political correspondent, Dan Balls, the release of that Star report more than 20 years ago was one of those moments in American political history that sticks with you. Nobody quite knew when it was coming. I mean, it was one of these things where you knew it was about to happen, but you weren't exactly sure when it was going to happen, and then you didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold. So it's, you know, it's this anticipation. It's everybody's kind of, you know, at the starting line waiting for this to to drop. And Congress and the, the media and, you know, certainly the White House, all wondering what in the heck is going to be in this thing. Yeah, let's talk about Congress specifically. What sort of tensions were mounting in Congress in anticipation of this report? Well, I mean, you had you, know, you had the Gingrich-led Congress in 1998, and many people who throughout the year were talking about the need to, you know, launch impeachment proceedings. But all of that was in a partisan environment, and the White House was fighting back, and, you know, President Clinton was fighting back, and he had a very aggressive team of attorneys who were fighting back. You had this situation situation much like today in which there is a very important legal battle and very important legal questions that are there um, and questions about what constitutes grounds for impeachment. Uh, And you also have an incredibly partisan environment 
of Republicans versus Democrats in how people perceive it. I mean, as you, as you recall, uh, President Clinton's approval ratings through this whole episode were quite good. I mean, compared to President Trump's, they were very, very, very good. I mean, he had a majority uh, approval rating. And yet Republicans in Congress uh, were after his scalp and, and were almost from the very beginning that the Monica Lewinsky story began to break. Okay, so September 9th, 1998 is when the report was released to Congress. And then on September 11th of 1998, it was then released to the public. It did go to Congress on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever it was. But Congress had like two seconds of advance notice on this. I mean, the the Ken Starr's operation basically called them and said, it's on the way. You know, in the Sort of the O.J. Simpson white Bronco chase. Mm-hmm. TV cameras are following the you know the vans that are going up to the Congress. So they delivered two sets of the report to Congress. I think the Star report itself was four or five hundred pages, but then there were several thousand pages of of documents. As I recall, they delivered the report and then thirty six boxes of material. Now I think at that may have been two copies of everything. So 18 boxes of, you know, of backup material that included raw testimony to the grand jury and all kinds of things that, you know, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't release. And the Republicans were not sure exactly what the, what they should do about the timing of the release. And one of the things that happened, frankly, is that the Star Report was incredibly salacious. I mean, I mean, incredibly salacious. I mean, the detail. In the footnotes. <laughs> Nonetheless. <laughs> The question was, how much of that should come out? And I think, as I think back on this, I think that the star team did not expect the most salacious stuff to be kind of thrown out into the public domain in the way it was. But when Congress got the report, they moved very, very quickly and released it and probably released it in a way that that stars people had not anticipated. So all of a sudden you had, you know, this, A, incredibly damning report with a series of, you know, recommendations of what were grounds for impeachment and also then just this tawdry description of all of the, you know, the encounters between President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So it was both a circus and also kind of high drama on the legal front. You say the report laid the grounds for impeachment. Did it sort of enumerate wrongdoings by the president? Yeah, it talked about, you know, witness tampering, it talked about obstruction of justice, and it talked about perjury. So, I mean, it it, it laid out and put it in the context of um, impeachable offenses. Uh, so it provided a roadmap to, you know, the Republicans in Congress uh, for impeachment proceedings. It was, you know, it was very clear what it was doing. Uh, and I think that was the way Starr interpreted his mandate. I mean, he can speak for himself, but I think that's the way he interpreted it. That, And, and not everybody did. I mean, the, the lawyers for the president indicated that the terms of his appointment basically only said that he should issue a report, you know, i.e. factual details, but not make it, in a sense, a a, a prosecutor's brief. Um, And Starr interpreted his mandate differently. So we're talking about this now because we're, as a country, anticipating a report from the special prosecutor. Is the situation we're in now, do you see it as analogous to what what our country, the situation our country was in before the Star Report? Can we compare these two moments in time? We can. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, you've got a, you, you've got a lengthy investigation that could very well lead to impeachment proceedings. I think there are a couple of differences. One is that 
that was focused almost entirely on President Clinton. I mean, that was that was the focus of this. The Mueller investigation, as we know, is much more sprawling, and we don't know how much of it in the end is going to focus on President Trump as opposed to what all the people that we, you know, many of whom we know about already and a number of whom have already been indicted, what was the activity of people in the orbit of the Trump campaign vis-a-vis the Russians and the degree to which there was collusion cooperation and the question then of if there was, if they find that there was collusion cooperation that, you know, that is beyond nefarious, what role, if any, did the president play in that? So that's that's one important difference as we await what Mueller does. Um, the other difference in this is that Robert Mueller has to go through the Justice Department. I mean, he 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 will not just send it to Congress, as I understand it. Um, and so there's an additional step, which is why there's a debate about uh, what will be released, how much will be released publicly. When Kenneth Starr released his report to Congress in 1998, the law at the time did not require him to send his findings to the attorney general. Since then, though, that law has expired. And now Robert Mueller must send his report to the head of the Justice Department. That reality means whoever fills that vacancy can play a crucial role in what information from Mueller's findings get through to Congress and ultimately to the public. And despite delays this week, that attorney general is likely to be William Barr. So William Barr is basically poised to become the once and future attorney general. He was the attorney general in the early 90s for George H.W. Bush. And so he's already had the job. And now he is very close to becoming the attorney general again. That's longtime national security reporter Devlin Barrett. He's been covering the ins and outs of the Mueller investigation for The Washington Post. And he was basically picked by the president because a lot of the people around the president said he would be the perfect person to take this very tough job in a very tough situation. And Barr has pitched himself to the public and the Senate and the president as someone who is basically so old and, you know, has done it before. So he's not really beholden to anyone. That's his public pitch is, you know, I'm not going to take a die for anyone and I'm not going to, you know, uh, cower before anyone because uh, ultimately I, William Barr, don't need this job. Mm -hmm. And yet his vote, his confirmation vote was delayed this week. Why? Well, for one thing, when it comes to senior officials confirmation process, it's pretty typical at this point in Washington for the minority party to just demand and get an extra week. Mm -hmm. That is an oddly frequent ritual, let's say, in the confirmation process of senior officials. But it was delayed and it was delayed in large part because Democrats are unhappy with some of Barr's answers about whether or not Mueller's final report will become public and how much of that information would be made public. And Democrats are are pretty unhappy with Barr's answers on that point. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that. But one other point of contention that has emerged from from Barr's hearing is that he suggested that he won't necessarily heed advice from the Justice Department's Ethics Council about recusing himself. So if the Ethics Council decides that their recommendation is that he recuse himself from any Mueller probe involvement, he might not necessarily listen to them. Is that unusual? Uh, it is unusual, and it's although it's becoming more usual by the month because the current acting attorney general, uh, Matt Whitaker, did essentially the same thing in that ethics officials said to Whitaker, 
we think you should recuse here. And Whitaker's own advisors told him, we don't think you should follow that rec- that that view. And Whitaker decided not to recuse. And frankly, Whitaker's decision paves the way for Barr to give himself that option. It's strange. Frankly, the DOJ ethics process is usually done behind closed doors and doesn't get this level of scrutiny from the outside. But now that we have this level of scrutiny after everything that's happened with the Russia investigation and recusals over the last two years, it's very alarming to a lot of Democrats that Barr is basically giving himself the out of, well, if I'm told to recuse, I may just decide not to do it. But why would Barr even be told to recuse himself? So Barr, uh, as basically a pundit, senior, respected conservative lawyer in Washington, wrote a bunch of editorial pieces in which he at times defended some of the president's actions like firing Jim Comey as FBI director or criticized uh, other Justice Department officials' actions like, for example, then Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates' decision not to defend the first travel ban, which was very controversial in in how it was done and executed. And he has basically made a series of public statements that have expressed significant skepticism about Mueller's mission. And to some Democrats, that's very alarming. Is there any evidence that he would, let's say, limit Mueller's funding, his probe, anything like that? There's no evidence of that. And he insists that he will not stop Mueller before his work is done and he will not fire Mueller without good cause and doesn't. And, you know, he and Mueller are old colleagues and friends. They worked together at the Justice Department before. So he has insisted that he wants Mueller to finish his work and he will not, as he put it, you know, obey an improper order to to dismiss Mueller or or cut him off at the knees in, in any bureaucratic sense. But frankly, for a lot of Democrats, that's not good enough. They want more promises from Barr that he'll release more information when the time comes. Okay. So on that point, this, as you say, was a major point of contention in his confirmation hearings, whether or not he would limit the contents of the report that were made public or released to Congress. What is the normal process for releasing a special prosecutor report? So it happens very rarely. We know what the regulations call for, which is basically Mueller to file a report of what he's done and why to the attorney general, and then the attorney general to file some sort of report to Congress about the conclusion of the work. Barr has sent very mixed signals as to to how much information might be contained in such a filing, and a lot of Democrats are demanding promises up front that Mueller's report, whatever it is, be sent to them. Directly. Directly. Just bypassing the attorney general completely. If not bypassing, then at least, you know, letting them look over the attorney general's shoulder and make some of their own judgments as to to what Mueller says. So why might something, let's say, legitimately get redacted from Mueller's report before it gets to Congress? One of the basic principles of federal prosecutions is that if you do not charge someone with a crime, you do not, for lack of a better term, air out all the bad stuff you found that didn't lead up to a criminal charge. Mm -hmm. That is written into the regs. That is a longtime practice of the department. I got to say, though, like one of the strange things about the last few years at the Department of Justice has been how far then FBI Director Jim Comey went from that practice. And Barr, I think, pretty significant to me, Barr in his confirmation hearing specifically pointed to how Comey did that in terms of saying, saying publicly a number of critical things about Hillary Clinton, even as he announced he was not going to seek charges against her. And Barr very specifically singled that out and said, you know, this is not how the department does business. That has some real implications for for what might happen with any Mueller report in that if, for example, Mueller tells the attorney general 
what he found for a variety of people around the president that he did not decide to charge with any crimes, there is an internally consistent logic to not releasing that information publicly, to just saying, you know what, we're not charging them. We're not going to speak to it. But is there a case to be made that essentially Comey set a new precedent for what the public should expect? Uh, I think there will certainly be a lot of Democrats who make that argument, and there may even be some lawyers who make that argument. Uh, I know that within the Justice Department, there is a great deal of concern that Comey's example should not become a precedent. Mm-hmm. And and so I think this is going to be I, – I suspect this will be a, this will be a bit of a, a struggle between the Justice Department and Congress on that very point. So if, if we're following the Justice Department precedent that you don't indict a sitting president mm-hmm. – would you then not air out any details about the president's involvement because ultimately he's not going to be indicted? I think there's certainly an argument you could make for that. And I think part of the marker that Barr has laid down publicly is that if we're not going to accuse anyone of anything, and I think there's a distinction to be made between accusing versus indicting because obviously I think both Mueller and Barr are are not interested in changing Justice Department precedent on the notion that you do not indict a sitting president. But if you were not going to accuse someone of wrongdoing, up to and including the president, I don't think it's likely that they will want to say much about what they found about that person, whether it's the president, whether it's someone close to the president. I think they're going to be fairly quiet on that front if they're not accusing anyone of wrongdoing. You don't think that Mueller would necessarily, and again, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're all guessing, but right. is there a possibility that Mueller would lay out a case for here's if somebody were to indict the president, this is the case against him. Is that something that we would see? I think that's always been the general framework for how Mueller is approaching the work, that his his mandate is to find out what happened here. And if it includes suspected criminal acts by you know people up to and including the president, that he needs to report that, even if that doesn't get reported in an indictment form because of longstanding DOJ uh, views on that. I definitely think that's on the table. I I don't think we know enough to predict yet whether Mueller believes he has evidence of that kind of criminal behavior by the president or, or others close to him. And so just to clarify, though, the attorney general can decide whether or not that information goes into the report. Uh, the attorney general decides what information goes to to Congress, to the report to Congress. Mueller decides what he puts in the report to the attorney general. And frankly, I think members of Congress are going to fight tooth and nail to see every iteration of, of that process. I don't think lawmakers are going to be satisfied just being told by the attorney general, for example, well, I've told you all the important parts. Right. So the attorney general is an incredibly important role when it comes to a special prosecutor investigation and the releasing of those findings. Absolutely. So here, whomever the next attorney general is, likely William Barr, he's in a position to potentially protect whomever Mueller's report might condemn. Uh, In theory, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. I think Barr views his job first and foremost as protecting – Barr has said he views his job first and foremost as protecting the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. And this is a – this entire case and this entire issue of investigating a president is very treacherous ground for the Justice Department, which answers to the president. So I, I do think that the attorney general is supremely important in this process. But I also think Mueller's view of these questions is supremely important. I I don't think if Mueller believes something should be – I'll put it this way. If Mueller believes something should be out in the public space, 
I think other people would have a hard time preventing Mueller from getting that out in the public space in one way or another. So Mueller's view of this stuff is just as important, if not more so, than Barr's. Is Barr at risk of not being confirmed? I really don't think so. I mean, first of all, Republicans have the numbers uh, and there has been very little indication of Republicans going soft or, or growing concerned about Barr. So right out of the gate, it doesn't seem like that's going to be an issue. Frankly, Democrats were a bit slow to even raise this concern about you know a public reporter or not public report or the recusal or not public recusal. You know, his hearing was largely very friendly and very respectful and it seemed only a day later that some of the Democrats realized that some of his answers were problematic to the very things they care most about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the notion that they could, you know, turn back the clock I think is a little far-fetched. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it's very likely that he gets confirmed. I think the big question is, does he get confirmed in the next week or two, which is the expectation? Uh, because if that happens, then he will almost certainly be the attorney general dealing with whatever Mueller's work product is. But if it drags on, the confirmation, I mean, then you have to wonder, so does the acting attorney general actually have to make some of these calls? And that could be a much messier set of decisions. Does the president, besides technically overseeing the Justice Department, is he able to intervene in any way with the release of Mueller's report? So the president is the boss of the attorney general. And the president is, through the attorney general, the boss of the special counsel. What both what, what Barr has really made adamant, adamantly clear is that he will not permit any sort of political interference or meddling with Mueller's process. So he has pledged that publicly. And I think if the president gave an improper order in that way, Barr has pretty clearly signaled he would not follow it. And that seems to be a pretty firm ground he's, he's staked out there. And what happens when an attorney general doesn't follow the orders of the president? Well, I mean, in theory, you risk being fired because, you know, everyone, every cabinet secretary serves at the pleasure of the president. Um, you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. So that would be up to the president, really, if in that scenario. But I got to say, you know, watching, watching the last two years, what's been striking about this process has been that after the Comey firing, and obviously the Comey firing was a big deal in this process and sort of set a lot of this in motion. Mm-hmm. You know, the president has been reluctant to sort of drop the hammer on on other folks in the Justice Department, precisely because the the, back, the political backlash of it might be more than he's willing to take. Uh, so he's often held fired. All right. So my final question to you then is, how do you expect this political pressure on the Justice Department to sort of play out in the eyes of the public? Well, look, I this is a little nerdy, but I have watched for more than a year as House Republicans have gone after Justice Department officials very hard to release every scrap of paper they have on the Clinton email investigation and other things. I frankly expect a bit of role reversal now where you might very well see Democrats taking up a very similar charge against the Justice Department demanding documents about the Russia investigation because if what's good for the goose is good for the gander, then by that by that measure, you know, uh, whatever is not made public by the attorney general, Congress and particularly House Democrats may force the Justice Department to make public. Mm-hmm. 
This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked listening to this, please share it, tell a friend, send me an email, send me a tweet, and come back next week for more. Thanks for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly helpful Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 